When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this man? This man, the one who judges us most, will be the one who loves us most fully. Our opening gospel and liturgy today include the very familiar liturgy of the Palms. As you watch from your home, I'm sure you feel exactly the way I do, standing in a nearly empty church, minus the laughing children processing down the aisle with palms scattered this way and that. We are all missing the happy chaos, the familiar characters, and our hearts ache. But this is what we've been given, and let us make the most of it. As I as you listen to me, I hope you are following along in the online bulletin because this gives us a special chance together to take a closer look at the texts that I have been read this morning. This week is real time walking with Jesus. If you are like me, questions will arise. Why did it have to happen like this? Hopefully these texts and my reflections upon them will help you process the violence, the judgment, and the love that we will witness as we walk through Holy Week. So let us begin. In the absence of our usual procession that we enact, simply close your eyes now and visualize the scene as Matthew records it. First, we see the crowds assemble. We see Jesus riding on two animals, a donkey and a colt, just as it was prophesied in Zechariah. We watch the crowds lay down their own cloaks on the path before him, laying a red carpet for his entry into Jerusalem. They are literally tearing down branches from the nearest palm trees to give homage to the approaching king. We hear them shouting the familiar refrain, words from the Hillel Psalm 118, which was always sung at Passover time to celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it sounds to us like we shall overcome. This very scene is meant to be reminiscent of the royal processions of their former kings, David and Solomon. Meanwhile, we watch those threatened by the strange Messiah stand by and watch in fear. After all, Jesus' followers possess no formal authority to change their world. But neighbor and friend, stranger and distant traveler, children and adults are marching into the city gates with Jesus to confess, contest their power. Confused citizens are in turmoil. Some may want to believe, others want desperately to stop this potential riot. They ask, who is this? And the crowds cry out, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It is probably so easy to visualize ourselves among them shouting, this is Jesus, this is our prophet. But can we also visualize that just in a few days, we might be among the same crowd shouting and screaming, crucify him. Jesus had previously carefully given instructions for this scene, unapologetically using messianic motifs from the prophets. Notice how the setting, 
is the Mount of Olives and Jesus is riding on a colt and a donkey, how that applies to the many diverse messianic expectations, but yet is portrayed as a sort of anti-triumphal march. For Jesus here is the gentle king. So clearly this is no conquering general, no liberator raising an army to march against Rome. The crowds, as Matthew calls them, it's basically function as a character in Matthew. They appear at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, coming to him from all around the region. They are the lost sheep of Israel, those who have been betrayed by their leaders who are collaborating with the oppressive regime, leaders who placed upon them extra burdens of their tradition, which are impossible to follow or attain, these crowds are among the people who have come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and historians put that number at some 200,000 pilgrims traveling into a city of maybe just 40,000 regular inhabitants. They are the poor, the 94% of Palestine's population who live from meal to meal. They are literally the blind and the lame, the outcasts, those who have been marginalized and falsely judged. But these also are the crowds who will later cry, crucify him. If we were to read on in Matthew, and I suggest that if you have your Bible at home and you open it to Matthew 21, we would move to the next scene. As the crowds march with Jesus into the city, Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers. This is a very precise messianic action, for he is cleansing the temple. This prompted the chief priests and the scribes to ask angrily, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus then leaves the city for the night. But when he returns the next morning, he curses a fruitless fig tree, symbolizing the coming judgment upon the Jewish leadership. It is no surprise then that when he enters the temple again, he encounters a challenge to his authority from the chief priests and elders. By what authority are you coming to do these things? They angrily ask. But Jesus does not address this question directly. Instead, he tells them three stories, ending the first with the pronouncement, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. This unruly crowd is going to enter the kingdom of God long before you do. In this parable of judgment that follows the story that we read in our gospel, second gospel reading, the group of the wicked tenants, Jesus is clearly judging the religious leaders, not the Jewish people. So in this story that Jesus continues to tell, a group of wicked tenants seize and kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. Jesus then interprets the parable. Interestingly, he uses the quotation about the rejection of the cornerstone, and that is taken from the very psalm of praise, the Hallel psalm, from which his followers had found their chant from the day before. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He indicates clearly that he is that stone and declares that the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. In other words, the tenants killed the great shepherd of Israel 
and their act will receive the judgment that is due. Perhaps the judgment on display in this parable is harsh. Perhaps when you heard it read, it was jarring to your ears. But remember this, judgment is what brought Jesus pain. Jesus bore the sin of those who killed him. Our texts tell us that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they realized he was talking about them and they wanted to arrest him. Jesus is very intent by presenting these violent images in the parable was to shock the Pharisees into a level of self-recognition of their culpability in the drama that was about to unfold. But Jesus also knew full well that these corrupt leaders would respond to this violation of their respect with violence themselves, and that in obedience to the Father, he would willingly suffer that violence because he understood that only that act would bring Israel's and humanity's rescue, not just from the Romans, but from the dominion of darkness that held their leaders captive. In this parable then, Jesus foretells his death and he defies their power over him. The stone that the bird builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. In other words, do your evil. The Lord is still in control. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. So from this story, we should gain two truths. First, we should expect people, maybe even some religious leaders, but also some of us will try to hinder the reign of Christ. After all, it was the crowds who yelled, crucify him. Secondly, God will be victorious over any plot or scheme Satan may devise against God's chosen. The cornerstone will remain secure. In spite of betrayal and death by the cruelest known torture, Jesus will retain the place given to him from the Father. He will be the victor. And though the people of God are now forewarned to expect attack, they also are to be assured of God's love and care because the parable has a happy ending. He ends it by saying, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, these false corrupt religious leaders, and be given to a people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. In other words, I'm not going to give this kingdom to the people that falsely claim that I am their Lord, but to those who are meek, to those who are pure in heart, to those that are poor in spirit, to those that are rich in love, to those who say they will take up his cross and deny themselves and follow him. So this transfer of the vineyard to those who produce the fruits of the kingdom is a restorative act, not a punitive one. 
And my quote from the beginning of the sermon, which is the title of this sermon, is from Frederick Beekner, who articulates this very well. The one who judges us most finely will be the one who loves us most fully. This image of an owner of a vineyard who cares for his vines is taken from our Old Testament reading today in Isaiah 5. And although this passage also contains words of stark judgment, it also contains words of great comfort. It speaks of a beloved one, a shepherd who tends a vineyard. He digs the ground and clears it of its stones and plants it with his chosen vines. He builds a watchtower in the midst of it. The passage holds warnings for those who would not carefully work the soil of the vineyard, but yet it illustrates beautifully how God cares for his people, a God who takes great cares to help us grow. Just 48 hours later, Jesus in his last words to his disciples will identify himself as both a true vine and a vine dresser who will care for his disciples as branches intended to bear much fruit. Our psalm for today also holds similar imagery. Two primary metaphors are used in this psalm. If you look at this psalm, you will see that God is portrayed as a shepherd and Israel as sheep, lost sheep, an image that is also used of kings in the Old Testament. But it also portrays God as a vine keeper who lovingly handpicks his plants and nurtures them into a vine whose branches will stretch out to the sea. The psalm uses these two images to recite the history of Israel. The opening cry, hear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a sheep, actually points to the context of its writing, the appeal to the Lord by the northern tribes of Israel on the eve of their destruction and exile by Assyria. But the irony within this plea is that we know that despite these fervent prayers, God did not restore these tribes. On the contrary, Assyria took them captive, never to return. God would not allow any false religiosity to help them avoid the harsh realities of suffering and defeat that was to be their ultimate judgment for their apostasy. Also, we too can learn from this psalm that the ultimate outcome of God's hearing our cries will not always be to end our suffering. Our prayers too cannot serve to treat God as merely a projection of our needs for security against death and pestilence. Psalm 91 teaches us that we are not to fear the terror of the night, nor the pestilence that stalks the darkness. The passion of Jesus Christ that we will encounter this week also must teach us that the only security we can have is that we will never be separated from Jesus Christ in life or death. The psalmist cries, restore Israel, let your face shine that they may be saved. 
As Israel sang this psalm of lament down to the time of Jesus, little did they know that their path of restoration would involve a dead Messiah. And yet the image of light piercing the darkness of their present circumstance and transforming it so that the people may become whole is at the heart of the cross and the resurrection. The one who judges us most fully will be the one who loves us most fully. In the midst of the pain of this week, hold on to that thought. Who is this man? He is our Messiah, the gentle, humble one who died so that he could always be our shepherd, the vine dresser of our souls. These scriptures have served as a comfort to me as I have studied them this past week, as it helps me to recognize that God is the one who planted the vine that is all souls. In my pain, I am forced to still remember the ways he has cared for it. And yet now he is breaking up hard bits of soil in my heart and yours. But this will eventually produce a beautiful vine. I hope we can remember that the true vine dresser of our community is Jesus alone. We are being brought back to receive from him our good shepherd so that our branches may take deep roots and grow in the love of our divine gardeners tenderness. He is our good shepherd. I want to close with a small portion of a letter that our brother Lee Hoffner passed on to our house group this week, a letter from an abbot of the Monastery of Nurcia in Umbria, Italy, who are experiencing the devastation of the coronavirus in their country and they are praying. This letter speaks to our own grieving pro process and also to the fear that some of us are facing in this time of coronavirus. And here is what the abbot says. St. Benedict exhorts us, keep death daily before your eyes. In this prompting taken from the fourth chapter of our patron's rule, we are reminded that God is the ultimate master of our lives, even if his presence is not always evident. The reality of death and judgment reminds us to trust in the mercy and justice of God alone, whereas being forgetful of death can lead us to rely on ourselves and the world's solutions to our problems. A great temptation is to demand that God return what we have lost. But in the field of tragedy, God sows seeds of new life. We all must water them with our prayers, both seen and unseen, with our sacrifices and perhaps even our lives. But death does not have the last word. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.